Hello and welcome to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. This is episode 148. Mike, this is the third episode in January already. Already. Boy, it feels like it's still 2023, really. It's 2024 now, huh? Here in classical music, we've still got uh, releases from 2023, but next week, I'm going to have some stuff from this year. Yeah, me too. All fresh yeah. stuff next week. Yeah. Any new listeners out there, I'm your co-host, Russ. And this is your co-host, Mike. Last week's episode, we had a first all-Hungarian jazz, so I want to thank all those musicians for getting in touch. We had some nice conversations. That would be Armin Jambor, Zoltan Kalmar, and Balaz Horvat, and it was a really interesting experience. And we found out that Hungarian jazz is actually kind of sunny and upbeat. Yeah, you know, not the way I kind of think of uh, Hungarian people generally. They're, <laughs> they're, I think of them as pretty serious, actually. Yeah, well, they're very intellectual as a country, I think, in Hungary, you know, so. Just for the uh, Hungarian musicians who, you know, Russ was talking to you about, I was actually looking in at those um, messages, too. I didn't comment on them, but I was in on the conversation in a way, like looking over Russ's shoulder, as it were. Yeah, but that was kind of rewarding, and we found out that, yeah. you know, the jazz coming out of Hungary now is right up there with anything else coming out around the world. I'm always happy to see that. So it's worth checking out fresh sounds from new places, as we'll be doing tonight later in the episode as well. Yeah. Well, really throughout the episode. As always in the episode description, you're going to find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll talk about tonight. And at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, CD quality streaming music from France. You can listen to the podcast on Deezer as well if you want to get everything in one place. Now, if you can't see the full description or the recording list or links on your app aren't easy to follow, you can always come over to our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe and tell a music-loving friend. Take a moment and give us a ranking or write a short review. That also helps us get listed in the music category recommendations. You can also come over and follow us on Facebook. We've got a page there. Get extra info on new releases throughout the week. You can leave a message or comment there as well. If you'd like to contact us directly, any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. As always, we want to mention our friends over at the same difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. That's AJ and Johnny, who look at several versions of the same jazz standard each episode. They play snippets from each version and discuss the history of the original, look at the different versions, say what they like and don't like. They have a good time doing it. You'll get a history lesson and <laughs> probably laugh a lot on the way. There's a link to their podcast in the description. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, you can check out their little promo at the end. And if you haven't heard it, go over and check out our guest episode that came out January 1st over there, where we discussed You Don't Know What Love Is. And uh, we're still trying to figure out what love is over here. <laughs> I think I have a good idea now, but yeah. we'll see. We'll keep investigating. I got some ideas I want to try out. Hmm. Yeah. You know, we'll see. <laughs> And as always, we're going to continue with playing music samples so you can actually hear the music we're talking about, get a better idea. And here's our fair use disclaimer. Music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. We also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high quality downloads to support the artists. I like to think that I've now moved on from You Don't Know What Love Is to Bob Marley's question, is this love that I'm feeling, you know, so. Oh, right. That's I'm a good my question. Way. Yeah, I'm up going up the ladder there. 
We've got a little interesting take on a love standard later on in the program tonight that ends with a question mark, interestingly. So we'll look forward to that, too. All right. In the meantime, we have no uh, really music news. It's still too early in the year for music news, yeah. really, yeah, which is, I guess, a good thing. No news is good news as long as just things keep uh, moving on, except that there are some good new uh, classical records coming out in 2024 now. I should probably get on the Facebook site <laughs> for once in my life and uh, post about some of them. We'll probably be talking about a few of these, too, because they're mm. kind of... The avalanche doesn't really happen until March, but right. there are already good things coming out, so you know, we'll see. Anyway, our first classical recording tonight is uh, from Spain. It's called Catalan Cello Works. So you got Spain and you got the cello. This should um, please quite a few listeners. The musicians on this record are uh, Dmitry Yablonsky on the cello, <laughs> not a very Spanish-sounding name, and... Uh, Laia Martin on the piano. She is Spanish, and uh, this is on the Naxos label. This album was released um, on December 1st, and on the same date, another um, album was released by Naxos, also called Catalan Cello Works, which is kind of like a, they call it a single, but I guess it's sort of like an encore for this album. We're going to talk about both of them, just so you know. There are two albums by this name. One of them is long and is available on a CD, and the other one is only streaming, but we'll get to that. When we do that, we're going to do the longer one that's available on CD first, called Catalan Cello Works. The um, album cover has sort of a brown mountain backdrop for this one, the one I'm talking about now. Okay, the programs don't overlap on both, so um, I don't know why they didn't put them all in one record. They could have fit, mm. but uh, it would have really been packed full. Anyway, the one I'm talking about now is, the, I guess, the main release, and the other is, uh, I guess, a digital single, a little bonus, I guess. The first track on this album is a work by Gaspar Casado, 1897-1966, so he was mostly the 20th century. Requiebros, which means compliments, and this is dedicated to Pablo Casals. Now, of course, um, Pablo Casals' name features with all of these composers because he was the world's great cellist, especially at, at that time, and he just also happened to be Spanish, so there was a lot of Spanish music that was dedicated to him, and he wrote some of it too. Casals was Casado's teacher, so I guess apparently Casado played the uh, cello too. Anyway, this uh, work was written in 1931, and it's a popular encore piece, and you'll hear why right away. It's really immediately appealing. Let's uh, just give this a sample. phrase ending there to come mm. out on and you hear all those little uh, Spanish um, you know, endings to that it has a very Spanish character it's sort of a funny thing Spanish music kind of leaps out at you as Spanish it has a certain sound to it that we can always identify and this piece has that the piano line on this has a lift in its step and I think uh, having Laia Martin on the piano here really helps this uh, album quite a bit she's got a really good feel for the liveliness of the rhythm her playing is full of rhythmic life and vivacity, and this in turn brings Yablonski in with the nice rhythmic lift as well. And he's got this great tone, uh, he's got this great feel for the phrasing of these Spanish lines, 
which are very satisfying in his hands. Um, he's got a lot of subtlety in his shading of tone and levels of volume. And the piece goes into quiet a few sections during its modest four-minute length. It's inventive, and not least because of the beautiful high-end quiet piano tone toward the end, just before the section leading to the final cadence. Track two, one of my favorite composers, Enrique Granados, Madrigal, or Madrigal, for cello and piano from 1915. This is also dedicated to Pablo Casals. It has a tricky, rippling rhythm in the piano that Laia Martin puts across really well. Jablonski is more earnest here in his tone, as the music calls for less outwardly passionate playing. Laia Martin, being Spanish herself, seems to get a Spanish feel into every line of her playing. She accompanies well and holds the spotlight as much as Jablonski does in this piece when necessary. Jablonski is in sure hands with her, and this is also a melodically inventive piece. Track 3, Enrique Granados, Sweet Sobre Cantos Gallegos, Movement 2, Danza Gallega, version for cello and piano from 1899. And here, Granados leans on local folk motifs and dance rhythms to evoke scenes and characteristics of Galicia. Rippling piano accompaniment. There's a lot of rippling piano accompaniment mm. on this album. Yeah. With a piano melody at first, which the cello continues when it comes in. The piano gets a lot of solo time in this piece. It's got a more somber middle section. It's in ABA form, and the rippling opening comes back after the B section. There's a lovely light dance quality to the theme, especially when we hear it at the end. And I'm going to sample the end of this. The next track, Pablo Casals, Romanza for cello and piano from 1899, and this has a bit of a romantic feel to it. The opening has a feeling of reminiscence. The cello line is song-like and is composed in short, pithy phrases, as is the piano accompaniment. The cello lines grow longer and more legato for the next section. A new section begins with the piano, again playing short phrases. The cello emerges from this with fluid 16th notes and tension builds up in the third minute as the tempo starts being squeezed slightly. We come out of this with the opening theme leading to a lovely high note at the end. Track 5, Granados again, Goyescas. This is a set of uh, piano works. Quejas, Olamaya el Ruiseñor, okay, arranged by uh, Frank Marshall here. The title means Complaints or the Maiden and the Nightingale. It's from 1911. This is a portrayal of the uh, nightingale at the end on the cello, which is kind of interesting because the piano has to play it normally in the solo version. So the cello starts this arrangement out with the piano playing accompanying patterns. The cello sings virtually throughout this arrangement, and the tone remains similar. At 6 minutes and 9 seconds, we hear the nightingale in the cello, and the work comes to a quick end afterwards. It's beautifully played, but I think this works better as a solo piano work because having the cello, the melody... Uh, stand out in the cello kind of, I feel like, unbalances the whole 
feeling of the piece, but mm-hmm. it is beautiful. I mean, I don't want to complain about it. Track six through eight, Gaspar Casado. Now, for me, he's the discovery on this album. I really liked all of the music by him that I heard. This is his Sonata Nello Stile Antico Spagnolo uh, from 1925. This has a range of influences reaching back to the Baroque and classical periods for melodic inspiration and clarity of form, yet it has the relative freedom composers such as Respighi and Chrysler could bring to their historically informed compositions. The first movement we're going to hear, this is a three-movement work, the introduction and allegro starts with solid tolling chords at the beginning, along with the slow but flowing cello line. At the 57 second mark, a more dancing theme, the allegro, comes in. It's folk-like in places and rather rustic. This feeling is kept throughout. It's a joyful first movement, and I want to sample this from the allegro. Jablonski's uh, double stopping there. Nice sound. Okay, second movement, grave. This has more of a lamenting quality to it, played slowly and with emotional vibrato in the cello. The cello's melody is moving here and movingly played by Jablonski. By the middle of the cello is digging in more, drawing out heavier tones. The movement comes to a rather sudden end, and then we go to the third movement, danza con variazioni. This is another dancing theme, very pleasant and catchy. Let's just hear the theme right from the beginning. after that. So a very pleasant theme and a very pleasant piece. From there, we get launched into a contemporary work by Benet Casablancas called Cant para Frederic Mompot, Remembranca, which from 1993. This was written for Mompot's uh, centenary, the centenary of his birth, so his hundredth birthday, which would have happened in 1993. The work features extreme intervals. It's very brief, under two minutes, yet stands out due to the deep tone coming from the cello. The piano is playing rock-hard crystalline chords during this, and the piece ends on a high cello note. It's rather jarring in this context, (laughs) um, I have to say, but it's very short. Anyway, we then go on to uh, Federico Mompo, Canzoni Danzas. These are such beautiful works there for solo piano. This is the first one, and it has the song La Fia de Carmesi, and then the dance is Dance de Castor Alter Sol. And this is arranged by Gaspar Casado. So we've got uh, our composer uh, on this album arranging this work. Hearing the cello playing the melody line here brings out the song quality of the, 
the song part very strongly, it sounds far more passionate in this guise. When the cello accompanies its strums pizzicato, the dance follows and draws a lighter tone from the cello. To be honest, though, this is another one, like uh, the Granados Goyescas, that I prefer as a piano solo. But it works well here. The cello and piano trade the theme often, which keeps the arrangement interesting. It ends rather suddenly, with the cello simply ending the line and lifting off of it. Track 11, Pablo Casals, Reverie. 1896, this has a French air to it. It has a pretty melody with a singing cello line and broken up chords as accompaniment in the piano. And the piece really is about the singing tone of the cello. Casals writing this to really show off his tone. Track 12, Casals again, Full d'Album. 1897, this starts with a light intro on the piano followed by a lilting melody on the cello. Casals seems to write with song melody in mind. He's got a good sense of melody and what fits on the cello as you would expect. And it's another beautifully lyrical piece. Track 13, we go back to Enrique Granados' Goyescas for solo piano. This is an intermezzo, and this one's arranged by Gaspar Casado. This has an urgent unison beginning played forte. The piano starts with a rather heavy rhythm to accompany the gentler melodic cello theme. At a minute and 31 seconds, there's a passionate outburst in both instruments with a Spanish feel to it. Let's hear that. there at the two-minute marker, just after the two-minute mark. And we suddenly move to a pianissimo dynamic, and we hear a dancing variation of the opening theme, which smooths out into a more song-like quality as it goes. A very inventive piece, and this is a really good arrangement of this work. Casado has a really good ear for arranging. All right, and that's the end of the CD, or the main part of this mm. album. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Naxos, as I mentioned, also released a brief 20-minute um, or really 19-minute album, also rather confusingly called Catalan Cello Works, with, with a different... Uh, <laughs> Why'd they do that? Yeah, I don't know. They should have called it like... Uh, they should have indicated that it was uh, different. But this one has like a purple sort of mountain on the cover, just so you can distinguish the two. The same two artists and the same label, and it's only available digitally. Oh, okay. That's the difference. But why not put it together all on the CD? You know, why not put them together on the digital? Yeah. Right, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, exactly. you just add these three to the end. You know, why do I have to have another a whole other file in there? I guess it kind of acts as a sort of encore. Mm -hmm. But I think it could have easily been accommodated on the CD, and it certainly could have been released as a single digital entity. But it's separated into two, so just so you know. All right, this has three works on it. The first one is by Pablo Casals. It's his Pastoral, and it's a pretty long work. It was his first major published work for cello and piano, published when he was 16. It quotes a popular Catalan theme, which anchors the piece. As you may have guessed from the title, it's also lyrical and has a gentle quality to it. It's in 3-4 for the intro, and the main section switches to a Siciliano rhythm at a minute and 20 seconds, so we hear the uh, Catalan theme here too. Let me go to that. I'm going to sample that theme in its Siciliano rhythm. 
Okay, the melody is then subjected to various accompaniments which change the cello line in subtle ways. At 5 minutes and 50 seconds there's a pause and the cello introduces a new approach answered by chords in the piano. The Siciliano rhythm of the beginning comes back after this and the piano introduces one last statement of the Catalan theme at the end which the cello picks up and leaves unconcluded. Track 2 of the 3, Gaspar Casado, again, Lamento de Boabdil, composed in 1931. This is a programmatic composition depicting the lament of the exiled Mohammed XII, the last Moorish ruler of Granada, who went by the nickname Boabdil. He ruled from 1482 to 1492. We remember 1492 from our uh, school books, don't we, Americans? Yeah. <laughs> when Granada fell to the Catholic kings, you know, Ferdinand and Isabella, the passionate cello part captures the moment when Boabdil looks back at the conquered city, lamenting his fate amid his mother's stinging criticism of his character. Yes, I don't know. Ooh. I'm sure people know this story, but he was um, looking back at what he had lost, and his mother said to him, don't cry like a woman for what you should have defended like a man. <laughs> oh, that's hard. That's harsh. Something like that. I don't remember the exact words. And anyway, it was in, in uh, whatever language it was, probably not Spanish. Anyway. For me, Casado is the discovery on these recordings, as I mentioned, and this work begins with some intriguing harmony from the piano. The cello comes in in its brooding low end. The lament breaks into genuinely deep anguish with the pounding piano chords heard in the first minute. This quickly lightens into a lighter kind of regret, with the cello recalling stabs of anger in the last 30 seconds via his quick, hard attack on the strings. The third track, Federico Mompo, one of my favorite composers, El Pont, or The Bridge, from 1976. Now, this is a version written by Mompo uh, for cello and piano. It was originally a piano piece, but Mompo expanded it for this version for cello and piano. It starts with characteristically ear-catching harmony on the piano. The piano has a long intro and introduces a lot of moods and harmony. Arpeggiated chords provide a bed for the cello, and we're going to hear the part where the cello comes in at a minute and 20 seconds in. whispering uh, cello uh, harmonics there. The cello plays a slow, legato, folk-like melody and even gets harmonics, which you just heard, when the piano takes over the theme. At about the three-minute mark, a new theme begins in the piano, which the cello comes in to assist. This section is more agitated as it goes on, building up tension. After this section, the cello reintroduces the melody it came in on after the intro at the beginning. After the statement of the melody, the ending is extended by the piano, again with the cello joining in later. Tolling bass notes accompany the cello to the ending. And that's it. As I mentioned for me, the big discovery on these albums is the music of Gaspar Casado, who was a friend of Casals, and his uh, student as well. He has a way with harmony that caught my ear. Casals tends to be lyrical in his compositions, unsurprisingly. He'd want to show off his gifts of song-like expression on the cello. I found the works Granados himself wrote for cello and piano to be riveting. 
But those arranged by another hand uh, rather took away some of the drama, although the one arranged by Casadol was pretty great. This was the case with the Monpo song and dance, though I found Monpo's expansion of El Pont to be inventive. Dmitry Yablonsky plays in the Spanish idiom well and has that wonderful throaty legato that draws us to the cello in the first place. I feel that Laia Martin does a lot to establish the Spanish character of these works via her piano playing, which is totally idiomatic. This is a great way to discover works that Pablo Casals would have played or been involved with. Cello and Spanish flavor go very well together. Yeah, I completely agree. There's nothing not to like about this combination, these great Catalan melodies and the cello sound, which here is mostly light-toned, but it seems to match these melodies really well. I enjoyed all of it, especially these uh, little Mampo miniature yeah. compositions are really great. Yeah, what a great combination, and I'd like to hear more of the compositions from these composers. Right, I'd like to uh, encourage our listeners to listen to more of the music of Federico Mampo, especially the uh, solo piano works. Just uh, do a search. There's some great ones by yeah. uh, Stephen Hoff. I think uh, Volodos did a pretty great recording of it, like maybe 10 years ago now, maybe more. There are a few others too. You'll really enjoy them. Um, They're all miniatures. They're just really beautiful. They're easy to remember. They're catchy. And they have great harmony. All right. So our second album for tonight in the classical category is an album, Piano Trios, by Brahms, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, and the contemporary Spanish composer, Francisco Cole. So I guess we have a uh, Spanish theme going on. Right. Hmm. This is by Trio Isimsis, and this um, ensemble includes Pablo Hernan Benedi on violin, Edvard Pogosian on cello, and Erdem Misilioglu, I hope I said that right, <laughs> on piano. <laughs> on the Rubicon label. We don't really do too much uh, on this label, so I'm really happy to mm. have them on board. This is not as straightforward an album as I thought it would be, and uh, I was rather uh, pleased to discover that. First of all, the first um, piano trio is by Eric Wolfgang Korngold, who was a Mozart-type um, child virtuoso, you know, a composing one, too, a composing prodigy, as well as a piano prodigy when he was a child. This is his piano trio in D major, Opus 1, so his first published work. Korngold was one of the most phenomenal child prodigies in music history. This work was written in 1910, when Korngold was 12 years old. <laughs> Amazing. Right? And it has a symphonic character. It's 30 minutes long. It's just thick with harmony, with lots of ideas. And he was 12 when he wrote it. I'm trying to think of what I was doing when I was 12. I think I was reading books at least, so that was good. I was writing orchestral <laughs> no. type piano trios like this one. This is quite a work, let me tell you. Before I say anything about this, let's just hear the opening of this work. So I'm going to take it away from that uh, building up of tension there. It starts with that nicely rippling piano figure accompanying the theme also in the piano and then the strings take over. Now, I've only heard this piece uh, once or twice before. 
and it's been 20 years, I think, since I've heard it on a new recording. This is played at a fairly fast and measured speed. Um, the older ones I heard were more romantic. The tempo was a bit more kind of vague, slow. You know, there was rubato in it. It's a very different feel than we're getting here. There are no pauses here to allow expression. The piano registers well throughout, even when the strings get the theme after the initial statement. At a minute and 40 seconds, we hear a second theme after a pause. The orchestral element is strong with sudden pullbacks in dynamic, well executed here. At two minutes and 40 seconds, we get a repeat of the opening material, and the piano is very busy in this work. And pianist Erdem Misirioglu is especially expressive and virtuosic. Uh, forgive me, Erdem. I don't know how to say your name keeping everything in his playing under control. The balance of this work is impressive, especially since the piano seems to be playing crashing chords at times, yet the strings are right up front. I'd guess this is due to the engineering. At 5 minutes and 20 seconds, we get a cautious excursion into the development section. It gains in boldness as it goes on through fragmented themes and keys. At about 7 minutes and 30 seconds, we arrive back at the opening theme, and tonal stability. Yeah, I want to say something about that 12-year-old Korngold. Uh, this is some pretty amazing, um, you know, harmonic and uh, work with harmony and melody. And But he's not doing anything fancy with the form. And this is kind of how you know that he's kind of in a more conservative, younger state <laughs> as he gets older. The form will start kind of changing mm-hmm. a bit as well. You, you want something, a stable frame to put your ideas in, I guess, when you're younger. There's a bit of a tonal excursion to the second theme, and after this we are led to a quiet and calm tonic chord ending. So nothing really fancy about the form, but plenty fancy about the uh, ornate themes that he's uh, putting across here. The second movement, Scherzo, and uh, this threatens to be a continuous rhythm, but starts out in fragmentary, teasing form, and the Asimsi's trio captures the quality well. The first full statement of the theme is in leaping triplets. The rhythm is well articulated by the ensemble, and there are a lot of pauses where it momentarily breaks down in the score. At 2 minutes and 44 seconds, there's a big pause. Then the languorous trio section comes in, the middle section of the piece, the B section, I guess you can call it. And it makes one wonder what this 12-year-old composer was picturing here. This sounds, uh, shall we say, oh, highly (laughs) romantic in a wink wink nudge nudge kind of way anyway trio Isimsis paints us a vivid picture tonally here with gentle lilting tone and melodic shaping at the four minute ten second mark the opening theme comes back and the section repeats so let me uh, just sample the i guess it's the beginning of the repeat here These little uh, rhythmic, uh, you yeah. know, tricks in there too. Really amazing and well caught by the ensemble here. There's some thundering piano chords that, again, don't obscure the string instruments, which sounds like it would be impossible in a live performance. I'm guessing that the recording is giving this ensemble a lot of help here. The piano does sound full, 
on the recording, but the strings are right on top of it somehow, so I guess they're closer to the microphones. I suspect some boosting of the strings by the engineer is responsible for that effect. The third movement, Larghetto, and the cello starts this movement out with a melody on the heavy side, capturing a sense of stillness with the piano providing some chords in the high end. The violin comes in and extends the theme into the high end. We can hear some echoes of the opening of the first movement in the material after a minute and 30 seconds. I noticed that while the piano was crashing out some chords at 2 minutes and 50 seconds, the pizzicati and the strings are registering right up front. We get a lovely song-like theme in the fourth minute that brings us to the end with legato strings and gently cascading piano arpeggios. The fourth movement finale has an active introduction with tricky figures coming in as the main theme at about the 23 second mark. This quickly dissipates and something else begins to be set up. A warmer theme is heard just before the one minute mark. There's a measured approach to the rhythm that I think allows this movement to register more fully than if it were full of rubato. The approach makes the rhythm easily discernible and allows the quick changes of ideas to register. Let me uh, give you a little sample of this work from about the 55 second mark or so. Really pretty melody. Caught my ear right away. The movement gets more excitable as it goes, and again, there's a thunderous piano that strings nevertheless manage to be heard clearly above. There's a nice cadence and segue to a new section at the 4 minute 40 second mark, nicely executed. The various themes used in the movement comes back, especially the opening of the first movement, now in waltz tempo. Uh, this movement, more than the others, has Vienna written all over it. It's a really highly appealing work. And Korngold was 12 years old when he wrote it. Unbelievable. Okay, next we get a composer that we've come across before on this podcast and <laughs> didn't yeah. really like very much. Now, I'm going to change my opinion here because I thought this was a pretty good piece. This is uh, Francisco Cole. This is his piano trio commissioned for the trio Isimsis, who we're hearing here. Cole says the work is rich in contrasting styles and influences. Quote, a voyage between the familiar and unconventional. It encompasses allusions to Strauss's Die Schweigsame Frau, a larghetto imbued by melodic features from the flamenco, a hallucinated fugue, and fragments of tango, unquote. So the first movement is very brief at a minute and 35 seconds. It bounces with piano chords and pizzicati. Let's hear a sample of that. Okay, that's about a third of the whole movement right there. <laughs> okay, very playful. I like it. Okay, you got some rhythmic uh, playfulness there. It seems to have two sections joined by a bass piano chord. 
rich sounding bass on the recording and this uh, minute and 35 seconds seems to go on for a long time. Atonal harmony takes over. This is appealing as long as the opening rhythm is there. It ends on a nice roll down to a bass note on the piano. Now when I say that it seems to take a long time, what I mean is it's because there's a lot of material squeezed into this minute and 35 seconds. There's a lot to listen to. These are unlabeled, by the way. It's just one, two, three, and four. So the second movement is the longest at 8 minutes and 36 seconds. A high piano note is heard with hardly any sustain. The piano starts noodling at the top of its range for the first 30 seconds. And then a faint cello high in its range comes in, ghostly sounding. The violin eventually enters with a slightly fuller tone. The cello comes in with a heavily vibratoed, almost buzzing sound at around the 2 minute and 10 second mark then quickly quietens again. The piano is carrying a lot of the music in his high-range chords, and the cello comes in with a deep line just before the three-minute mark. Piano chords take over by the fourth minute, and this is clearly the largo, though unlabeled, and I'm wondering what the flamenco elements are here. They're very slow speed, if they're there. The movement relies a lot on sustain in the piano and the overtones that it produces. The movement itself is melodic, just at a very slow speed, and the melody comes across as rather disturbing. The cello takes over the melody in the last movement with lightly crescendoing, swooping lines. The violin comes in for some counter melody, and at the end we're left with the piano as we heard it at the beginning. It ends on a sudden chord. The third movement starts with sharply struck piano notes and sustained, quickly crescendoing violin tones. This sounds like the hallucinated fugue that Cole mentions in his notes. The tones themselves aren't particularly harsh, just the way the individual tones are attacked, especially in the violin. Cole seems to favor that sustained note quick crescendo. I rather like the bouncing theme at the 2 minute 45 second mark with its quick glissandos on individual notes. A nice effect. Let's sample that from 2 minutes and 45 seconds into the movement. change of section there. Sometimes those little glissandi, like the pew, pew, they kind of remind me a bit of those <laughs> cu Cuban drums where you can kind of sort of bend the sound a little bit. It's kind of a cool effect. Anyway, the fourth movement starts with rushing staccato lines in the strings with some quick glissando effects as well. The piano plays accented combinations of tones. You can hear traces of a tango from the uh, 45 second mark moaning its melody with those quick glissando effects on the strings. And let's get a sample of that as well.
Well, Cole certainly has some interesting expressive ideas. They're pretty inventive, I have to say. The tango sounds disassembled, almost cubist. It comes and goes and is almost suggested. The bass notes on the piano come through powerfully on the recording, and I have to say, this particular performance and recording are both well-realized. There's an ear-catching section at 3 minutes and 10 seconds with pizzicato cello and swooping glissando violin tones. And at 3 minutes and 34 seconds, we hear popcorn-like pizzicato from both string instruments, an effect I like. I'm kind of intrigued by some of the effects used throughout this piece, like the glissandi that I sampled twice, the moaning crescendos, which we also heard just previously, the pizzicati, and the way they're all placed and arranged. So this is a work that held my interest. The piece ends rather inconclusively on a quiet piano ascent. Back to familiar territory for the last work, Brahms' second piano trio, this one in C major, opus 87, written in 1880-1882. The first movement, Allegro, is slowly taken by the unison strings here. This starts heading straight for a tension-building climax, but pulls back. Bass notes again on the piano register richly on the recording, sounding live in the room. The section at 55 seconds where the theme is heard over rushing piano doesn't have the flow of more familiar recordings, and what we're going to find out is the approach here is really rather different than we're used to for this work. Let me sample just that section, 55 seconds into the first movement of this work. Trio Isimsis is highlighting the quick changes of sections and harmony here. They disconnect rather than attempt to connect the various melodic threads and harmonic sections. There's something lumpy but nevertheless ear-grabbing about the approach. It's interesting, making me hear this work in a different way, not in the usual romantic one that we get so often. At 2 minutes and 55 seconds in this first movement, we hear the second theme, a bit more flowing than the opening. At 3 minutes and 30 seconds, we hear the opening unison theme again, but here it goes in a different direction. The development? I'd say, yes, this is the development section, but the joins are vague. There's a lot of wandering harmony. I like the cello solo theme at 4 minutes and 32 seconds, which the violin quickly takes over. By 6 minutes and 45 seconds, we're back on familiar territory as we seem to be heading to a recapitulation. As is so often the case with Brahms, the re-entry to the recapitulation is eluded. We clearly hear the second theme at 7 minutes and 30 seconds. The drama of the tension buildup in the eighth minute is played up. The movement comes to a satisfying finish with those unison strings heard at the beginning. Yeah, by the way, something about this work, the strings will play a unison harmony at the beginning of every movement, which is rather odd and interesting. The second movement, Andante con Moto, is a tema con variazioni, has a Hungarian-flavored theme and a scotch snap rhythm. Unison strings again with piano chords. The theme at a minute and 19 seconds is played with a hush, as is the piano theme at 2 minutes and 30 seconds, followed by melody in both cello and piano. We dramatically break out of this with a forte in the unison strings at the 4 minute mark. Much of the string figuration is unusually played staccato here. 
And the piano's use of the pedal is very light, so the piano gets a relatively dry, quickly fading tone as well. At 6 minutes and 13 seconds, the tone becomes veiled again for another quiet playing of the second theme from a minute and 19 seconds, the ones we heard in a minute and 19 seconds of the first time. We come out of this with a crescendo, and the final cadence material is played with admirable restraint. The third movement, Scherzo, marked presto and then a trio, poco meno presto, has a shadowy, almost demonic character, according to the notes. The trio section lets in a shaft of light. This starts with quick runs on the cello. The piano's articulation is particularly well played and caught here. And the rhythm to this is played with a lightly sinister bounce, which is a little different than what we usually hear. Let's give this a sample. puts me in mind of uh, the Scherzo and Beethoven's Ninth Symphony a little bit, the way it's played mm. here. At a minute and 27 seconds, the gorgeous trio theme comes in, almost unfolding in the violin. A compelling approach from the Isimsi's trio here. I'd sample it, but you need to hear how it emerges from the opening material. This is the most romantic-sounding approach they've used in this work, but it's still restrained. At the 3 minute and 19 second mark, the opening quick sinister material is back for a repeat of the Scherzo material. Fourth movement finale, Allegro Giocoso, has a final unison opening, and this is played at a rather fast tempo. It comes across as festive and extremely positive. Let's hear it. Brahms in his later works will start moving the harmony into the, the next section before he finishes the phrase. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty intriguing. The approach draws a lot of new angles out of the piece that I hadn't thought about before, and I generally like the performance of music that does that, as I do here. The Asimsias keep the repeating theme subtle and full of rhythmic energy. The one at 3 minutes and 17 seconds is bright, fast, and celebratory. I like the way the themes at 4 minutes and 35 seconds, familiar from the faster material, are thrown into enough relief that the connection is obvious. The movement has an exciting lead-up to the final jubilant chord. This is good programming. You've got a contemporary work between two highly romantic idiom works by melodic composers, an ideal way to introduce new music. The sound quality isn't rich and upholstered, but is full of detail and comes across as warm nonetheless, with the piano sound especially registering well. It sounds like the individual instruments in the corn gold are jiggered by the engineer a bit to make the strings sound vivid and sensitive even in loud piano sections. And that's no problem for me, as all of the detail and expression comes through strongly, though this would be impossible to achieve in a live concert. 
the piano would have to be more restrained. The Korngold Trio isn't recorded often enough and comes up vividly and with rhythmic vibrancy here. Uh, this is a really unique performance of that work. The Simpsons Trio being careful to keep the rhythm steady despite all the quick changes. This is probably the best performance of the Korngold Trio I've heard on record. It's certainly the most unique. The carefully applied rhythmic approach works exceptionally well for this piece. I'm not a big fan of Cole's music in general, but I liked this particular work enough. It features some interesting sounds and approaches to the piano trio ensemble. And I have to say, one of the reasons we talk about Cole's music so much is that musicians program it quite often, so they apparently really like it and want us to, too. I'll keep trying, I promise. The Brahms is performed in a more section-divided manner, without the romantic melodic flow we traditionally hear, and it made me hear the work in a more intellectual way. This won't be to all listeners' tastes, but if you're looking for a deeper dive or another side of this great work, this would be worth hearing. It's a recording that has you listening with new ears. I thought it was a fine trio recording. Trio Isismus has a fleetness of execution. Even in the thick lines of Brahms, they don't get bogged down. The program is a sandwich, as you mentioned, with the chewy meat of coal on more romantic bread of corn, gold, and Brahms. There's a strong sense of motion through the whole program, great balance, and nice dynamic contrast in the recording. Okay, and finally, we move on to a contemporary composer, and a new one for me, Michael Jarrell. He's Swiss, born in 1958, and this is just simply called Orchestral Works. It's um, performed by Ilya Gringoltz on violin, Florent Jodelet on percussion, Orchestre National de Pays de la Loire, uh, conducted by Pascal Roffet. And it's on the Beast label, and it's an SACD. The sound quality of this album is going to make you want to hear this in the best sound possible. <laughs> I really did enjoy this, even though it was a bit of a demanding listen. This is the second, by the way, of Pascal Roffet and... Uh, Orchestre National de Pays de la Loire's um, survey of Michael Jarrell's music. There was one that came out in 2021. This has three works on it. The first one is called Paysage avec figure absente nach lese four. That, that would be German. <laughs> you say that. Eins, zwei, drei, vier. Nach lese vier. Okay, there it is. Okay, this features Ilya Gringoltz on the violin. So we have like a, a French title with a German nickname. <laughs> Go figure there. Okay, this was originally written for Isabel Faust and dedicated hmm. to her. The title refers to Jarrell's refusal to develop all the figures generated by the solo violin. He's going for a kind of antiphony or responsory in the relationship between violin and ensemble. So the ensemble, rather than developing the solo violin's material, it sort of responds to it, I'm guessing. That's what I'm hearing anyway. The title comes from a text by Philippe Jacotet. As you may have guessed from the description, this is a pretty intellectual piece and has the brain following the various sounds. It starts with popcorn-like pizzicati in the strings and little switches on single notes in the violin. And I have to say, this um, unusual as it is, it caught my ear right away in an appealing way. I was kind of sort of mm. locked into this right from the beginning. Let's hear how it starts. Thank you. 
Okay, there's some pretty intriguing sounds that are creeping <laughs> in there, and that's going to be the case with this entire piece. There are a lot of sustained, mysterious orchestral sounds accompanying, and this would be a good piece to see performed live or on video, as there's a lot of activity from the violin that gets handed off seamlessly, and it's hard to hear when the handoff happens, so expertly is it scored. In the second minute, the violin plays some very subtle, organized patterns on the verge of disorder and noise, but listening in, you can hear the patterns. What's interesting is when the orchestra takes the violin's line, it goes in a completely different place with it. At 3 minutes and 20 seconds, there's a big splash in the orchestra, after which the anguished violin begins what sounds like a new section. Occasionally, the orchestra will provide punctuation to the violin's figures. I'm picking out the ticking pizzicato ostinato figure at 5 minutes and 13 seconds as the beginning of a new section, accompanied by sustained sounds from the orchestra providing terra firma for the violin's line. The violin here starts playing more sustained tones between its wavering figures. I like some of the ethereal, otherworldly sounds produced by the orchestra, like the wavering background from around the 6 minute 50 second mark. At 7 minutes and 20 seconds, it seems the violin picks up this wavering sound and goes with it for a bit. The orchestra responds with something new, a gentle, steadily lopsided, scored, rhythmic ticking pattern. In the 10th minute of this 18-minute work, we're hearing a lot of double-stopped, sustained, but wavering tones in the violin, perhaps another new section. There are harmonics, too. The orchestra responds in its own way. At the 12 minutes and 10 second mark, there's a minor outburst in the orchestra, which fades and exposes the violin, which breaks into a fast figure. And I'm going to sample that section that I just talked about. Okay, now I'm sampling sections of this score, but I can't really put across what's so interesting about it via the samples, because it's really how everything sort of plays out that makes this piece really interesting. So the violin's line is well-defined and continuous now, as you heard. Uh, it hadn't been up until this point. Extremely impressive virtuosity is shown here, and really throughout, uh, by Ilya Gringoltz, the soloist. After the section explodes into its ending, we hear some enchanting quiet sounds in the percussion and harmonics from the orchestra in the 14th minute. The violin starts playing long, sustained tones with some non-traditional violin sounds. Uh, the violin then starts a steady quarter-note mechanical circling figure in the 16th minute, responded to by a gauzy-sounding sustained chord from the orchestra. This continues as the bowing gets lighter and the sound weaker, and the violin line does a sort of natural fade to end the piece. Yeah, that word gauzy is going to come up a lot in this music, these kind of like gauzy textures that Jarrell gets from the orchestra. Okay, the second work, the middle work, is for the orchestra only, and it's called Zex Augenblick, or Six Eye Blinks. I kind of like the title. It's in uh, six movements, as you might guess. It was written during lockdown, and writing musical fragments, or moments, as Schubert would have called them, think of his Moment Musico for um, the solo piano, 
seemed to Jarrell the most appropriate solution to composition of a large-scale piece during this period. Since for him, composing is an ethical act, his way of advancing through life and trying to experience who he is, who we are, and what life can mean. These movements are closely related in spirit, but do not form a single entity like the different movements of a symphony. They are moments, he insists. He compares the shortest pieces of the center of the work to a concentration or implosion of sound matter, and compares the approach to the sculptor Alberto Giacometti's Lom Kimash sculptures. You've probably seen these. You can look them up on the internet. I've seen like a display of these, and the biggest ones are just gigantic. They're mm. like twice the size of human beings. They're made of like sort of metal. The first sculptures were large in scale, but he removed more and more material to pare them down to the essentials. And in the end, the sculptures often turned out to be very small. So we can kind of compare that sort of paring down of size to the paring down of these lengths of these movements as they go. The second track, this is number one of the six eye blinks, has a rushing opening in the strings with light percussive pounding. It sounds pretty urgent. Let's hear a sample of this. Yeah, this sounds like it's on its way to somewhere, too, so it's got a lot of urgency to it. The strings have a moth-like sound to them, fluttering softly. The urgent quality continues throughout, with the tempo always on the fast side, and lines sounding like they're eager to get somewhere. At two minutes and two seconds, there's a sudden change of texture to something more sustained, followed by a loud percussive punctuation mark. After this, gauzy sustained masses of sound are heard. More pauses follow, followed by fragmentary patterns. Track three, number two, starts quietly with what sounds like a stopped bass note on the piano and gradually builds up to explosions via continually chirping oboe line. The oboe line continues throughout with lurching, ominous chord-based rhythm in the background. Track four is the third of the Augenblick. It starts with gauzy woodwind. I'm going to sample this so you know what I mean by gauzy. It's this quality of sound. Let's listen. Now, I don't know about you, but I like that orchestration of that whole hypnotic rhythm and the mysteriousness of the whole sound of that. It's got a ticking rhythm that makes it hypnotic, and this is already shorter at a minute and 44 seconds, whereas the first track was over five minutes, and it continues with its clouds of woodwind to the end, so gauzy. It's kind of like the harmony is sort of unclear. It's sort of like melting into each other. It's kind of opaque. You can't really hear past the sound that these chords are making. That's sort of what I mean by that. Track five. Number four, low bass note followed by mid-range string sounds, mostly quickly bowed and woodwinds. 
Track six is number five, sustained tones from the woodwinds who create a cloud of sound that hangs on for about 50 seconds with subtle shifts to it. There's a pause and the clouds shift a bit more and continue to the end. I particularly liked that one. And I also liked track seven, which is the last of the Augenblicke. It starts with a percussion and low string burst followed by rushing woodwinds and strings. Let's sample the beginning of this one. I have to say, Jarrell does urgency well, as yeah. does uh, Rofe in his conducting. This one is back up to three minutes, and the rhythm is urgent with quick activity happening in the strings. There's a subtle shift into quick crescendo, decrescendo patterns in the middle, then towards the end, a kind of buzzing, rising quality. The end quiets down with quiet, accented chords and syncopated rhythm that suddenly stop to end the piece. The third work on this is another long one. It's about 17 minutes of continuous music. It's called Un Long Fracas Somptueux de Rapide Celeste, which means a long, sumptuous thunder of celestial rapidity. I don't understand that in English either. No. <laughs> anyway, let's, um, let's talk about this a little bit, what he's after here. This is a percussion work. Florent Jodelet is the percussionist. The idea for this, Jarrell explains, was to start with a short, powerful initial explosion that would reappear throughout the piece more or less regularly in different forms. This art of punctuation underpins every musical idea. The title comes from a book called En Balcon and Forêt by Julien Grac. In a passage that describes the start of a battle on the Meuse, Jarrell was struck by this surrealist author's description of the thunder of the cannons. He was taken by Grock's way, that's G-R-A-C-Q, in case anybody wants to look up this book, his Grock's way of describing something so brutal and frightening with such poetry and force of expression. This is all, indeed a sort of, what do you call it, a contradiction in art you can mm. like in cinema and movies you can make uh, violence beautiful by showing it in slow motion and it's always been something that's troubled people well he's trying to achieve something of that beauty and something brutal and frightening here the opening is pretty emphatic without being very loud and then we hear what i think is a marimba playing rapidly anyway let's um sample the opening before we get too far into this description Well, that is certainly some uh, original <laughs> <laughs> instrumentation and use of these instruments, too. It, I think it's really cool. I was kind of like pretty compelled by that right away. 
Uh, all accented sounds from the orchestra come across as wild. A minute in, and the percussion is making liquid dripping sounds. We hear various percussion instruments at this point of different types, like wood and metal. The playing is on the virtuosic side. It sounds excitable and really amped up on caffeine. It's beautifully recorded, too, right up front on the recording. All percussion instruments come up vividly on this recording. I especially like the light metallic splashes and around the third minute. They're very subtle. In the fifth minute, the music has reached long, quiet, sustained tones, sounding a bit distant and spacey. The marimba is still heard, now playing gently. It seems to be the main percussion instrument in the work, and it's definitely a marimba now. Now, at the beginning, I wasn't sure. It, it could have been a marimba in its high end, or it could have even been a xylophone, but I don't really remember what a xylophone sounds like. I haven't heard it in a really long time. Anyway, the marimba is heard and builds up to a big crescendo in the sixth minute, complete with a gong at the climax. The music is still now as we hear more gongs punctuating the musical space. Very rapid, woody percussion takes over for the next section along with the marimba. Let's uh, get a little sample of that. Let's get out of that right there. <laughs> don't want to give you, don't want to give away too much. Anyway, this loudish section gradually diminishes back into a quiet space by the 10-minute mark, and we're back in the depths of space. In the 13th minute, the percussionist gets a lot of solo space. I guess you could call it a cadenza, being that the percussion holds the entire stage at this point. Jodelet is subtle and gets a sumptuous sound out of his instruments. At the 14 minute and 40 second mark, we're in a section where low-end instruments are making faint groaning sounds as lightly sighing strings and percussion accompany with a pulse. The combinations of sounds in this work are really intriguing to me, mostly because it's such it's this really pleasing sort of percussion sort of sounds. The piece reaches its end with feather light repeated note hits on the marimba, and the piece simply vanishes from audibility. I found this work very compelling. In fact, I enjoyed this album more and more as it went on, and as I got used to Jarel's um, sound world. In fact, if I were to probably go back to the beginning, I'd probably enjoy the uh, violin work a lot more as well. Anyway, this is really an interesting release. It's the sort of thing that I hear and immediately want to turn other people onto it, only I know I have my work cut out for me, as it's not straightforward melodic music that everyone will accept. It's not often that I take to challenging music like this right away, but it all had a unique personality and appeal to it, and I found it all rather exciting, though not in a traditional way via buildup of harmonic tension or propulsive rhythm, although there is like buildup of tension, it's just not harmonic. Jarello is able to conjure up compelling combinations of sounds via attack, sustain, or rhythm, and keep the ear and really the whole body engaged via percussive rhythmic elements. 
Kudos to the Beast label for championing this composer and this music, and in such sumptuous sound, too, fully warranting its SACD release. In fact, I'll have to pick up a copy of this eventually, um, because I'm afraid that Apple's going to ruin it all and take away all the the Beast's SACDs they now own, Beast's catalog. This isn't melodic music, but it's highly dramatic and invites the attention. I found... Zech's Augenblick to have a lot of tension, and the combinations of sounds kept me wanting more. Please try it and have an open mind. I think this is rewarding music. I felt similarly about this recording. I guess it might be unsettling music to some people, but I was really engaged. It's a great logical presentation of tense but intriguing, strange musical sounds. Yeah. There's always a direction to where he's going with the rhythms and interesting tones that you hear. And I was just pulled into it right through the whole program. So I had a lot of fun listening to this. Yeah. So give yourself a little challenge for the new year, everybody. I think uh, this is really going to be worth it. Yeah. All right. What do we got over in jazz today? Or on the jazz side, we're going to have a little bridge from the classical. Oh, nice. That has worked out recently. Particularly last year, one of our favorite recordings was Sati, A Time Remembered from bassist Casper Van Miel, and we found that, you know, the unique harmonies and those famous melodies from Satie's piano compositions could be fertile ground for a lot of jazz imagination and things to work around that. And similarly, here we're going to start out with a recording called Bizet, Carmen in Jazz, from saxophonist John Ellis and his quartet. This is on Blue Room Music. It came out December 22nd. Ellis is a native of North Carolina. He learned clarinet and piano as a child. He was a second place winner of the Thelonious Monk saxophone competition in 2002. Now he's on the New York jazz scene with more than 150 album credits as a sideman and 14 albums as a leader. Three of those are featuring his New Orleans centered band Double Wide. He also co-produced the music for the children's book series Baby Loves Jazz with Aaron Goldberg. And he wrote the theme music for the NPR podcast Rough Translation. We've heard him before on the podcast on episode 16 on Michael Rodriguez's Pathways, also on episode 122 on Davy Mooney's Way Back, and episode 125 on Alan Ferber's Up High Down Low recording, but we haven't heard him as a leader yet. About this album, he says, quote, The idea to do jazz quartet arrangements of the music of Bizet's Carmen wasn't initially mine. I was invited to play with my quartet at the St. Bart's Music Festival in 2020, and the theme for the festival that year was Carmen. The festival directors requested selections from Carmen for our set, and so I took up the challenge of adapting the music for us to play. The first thing I did was reach out to my mentor from my days at the new school, Robert Sadden, and he guided me towards the most important themes to work on. My goal was to keep the songs mostly intact and recognizable, while also making them fun for us to play and improvise over. When we played the show, the audience, mostly French-speaking, went crazy. I was surprised at how well it went over, and it was clear from the response that we should record the music and try to get it out more widely into the world." So that's the genesis for this project, and I had a lot of fun listening to this, and I think you will too. I did too. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got John Ellis on tenor and soprano sax, also bass clarinet on one track here, Ruben Rogers on bass. Jason Marsalis on drums, and Gary Versace on piano. Well, we're going to start out with the Habanera. This is from oh, Act One. Habanera. Yeah. yeah, in the opera, where Carmen enters and sings her provocative theme here. And everyone knows this melody. 
They get things off to a fun start with hand claps and a sexy bass ostinato from Rogers. Ellis comes in on the descending melody lines on soprano sax and check out the cool articulation. A little break from the rhythm section under the sax lines brings in some jazzier harmonies and a subdivided beat into the next sunny major melody section. So let's hear this get going. fun is that? It's funny you use the word fun because the way they characterize the melody kind of made me picture you know, Cindy Lauper in the Girls Just Want to Have Fun video, you know, where she's right. tossing her head around and stuff, if you remember yeah. that. Well, a return to the ostinato then brings Ellis soloing in with snaky soprano lines. So let's hear some of his improvisations later on in this track. a lot of fun and the major minor switch-ups and groove changes keep things interesting. Versace has a reserved and melodic solo next, mostly using just his right hand until he mixes in some fun dissonance for a climax. The hand claps are back with just soprano sax to get going again on the major melody section and a drum break sets up for a final descending minor line with a little hesitation to end it. Track two is Seguadilla. It's also from Act One. This is where Carmen beguiles Jose with her song of uh, a night of dancing and passion with her lover. This melody, which is a waltz in the opera, is going to get some exciting rhythmic transformations in a really cool arrangement. Tenor sax phrases and drum fills get it started out into sections of throbbing samba groove and lighter cymbal work from Marsalis. So let's hear this one get going as well.
Well, Versace has an interesting solo on this one with a lot of rhythmic change-ups and ringing chords, so let's hear some of that a little bit later. is back there with more melody lines into drum fills and then a real workout for Marsalis. It gets Rubato to usher in a ringing bass solo from Rogers, left all on his own to a pause for the melody and samba push to get started again. Don't get too comfortable because there is more rhythmic fun into a little sax cadenza where Ellis gets into the high register. When the rhythm section returns, they are swinging now as Ellis continues on improvising with staccato and then smooth phrases into a final melody phrase and pause. It gets an outro to match the opening to end it, a playful and fun arrangement that keeps you guessing all the way. Track three is Flower Song from Act Two of the opera. This is sung by Jose. In the opera, the English horn brings in the lovely tenor vocal melody. Here, it gets a waltzing ballad treatment as a sax and piano duet. Ellis's tone is great, full-throated but airy. Versace is a great accompanist always, and he always just plays the right amount to back and make a soloist sound great. And it's lovely here, sometimes pushing a bit more rhythmic or ringing, especially in his own solo. Ellis is back with his own improvisations. Things turn bluesy for a climax and then get softer and lyrical for a final melody section. The ending gets rubato and delicate with a tasty ending from Versace. You really need to hear the whole arc of the development of this track, so don't miss it. Track 4, Toreador from Act 2, sung by the bullfighter Escamillo. Everyone knows this one with the dramatic minor start and famous theme. Rhythm section intro here gets a sexy subdivided groove going for Ellis to bring in the minor melody on tenor sax. There are some cool breaks for bass lines and Rogers is up for a bass solo over some tight snare from Marsalis. Let's hear some of his solo on this one.
Ellis is back, and then a bendy bass and drum fill transition into the sunny major theme on soprano sax now. With some New Orleans-like touches on the drums from Marsalis, Rogers gets the bass worked up into a chugging walk as it swings along under a soprano sax solo. Versace keeps it swinging in his piano solo, and Ellis is back with the melody to take it to the end. This sounds like it should be a jazz standard. Hmm. Track 5, Gypsy Song. This is from Act 2, sung by Carmen. In the opera, this song has a constant throbbing interval line underneath. Here they give it a hypnotic 3-4 groove with a cool beat from Marsalis, a 6-beat bass riff, and ringing repeated chords from Versace to get it going. So let's hear this get started. sure is a great tantalizing tenor sax tone from Ellis. There are mm. some great harmonies to explore in his solo here, and he doesn't run out of creative lines, ending up kind of wispier. Versace follows with a gently rhythmic solo, showing off his touch that gets into some interesting running lines too, and Ellis is back for the final melody section and a few gypsy flutters at the end. The recording is going to end up with Card Song. This is from Act 3. Solo bass clarinet gets this started into a bass heartbeat and sparse piano from Versace. It's an intimate dance between them on different sections. Rogers has a gently pleading bass solo, and Versace makes the notes expensive into the extreme high register on his solo. Ellis's solo captures all the charm that we love about the bass clarinet, so let's hear some of that on this last track. Versace has some more high trickles at the end before Ellis is back for the slowed ending. 
And that's it. Well, this was great. Very creative reimaginations of these melodies. A full range of ideas from tender treatments to snappy grooves. The arrangements and change-ups keep you guessing. Ellis has a palette of different tones on each instrument to match the mood. And we get tenor and soprano sax and a final satisfying bass clarinet. Thoughtful solos all around from Ellis, Versace, and Rogers, and Marsalis propels everything tightly or disappears depending on the mood. Opera fans will get a lot of smiles out of familiar melodies heard in a new light, but almost everyone surely knows some of these melodies. This is the latest in a series of recordings in recent years that shows us that classical music, in this case opera, can be an inspiration for creative and fresh jazz. Yeah, I generally like hearing classical works rendered into jazz form, you know, as much as I like hearing, you know, Beatles songs are popular music mm. too. And for me, the more far out, the better, <laughs> you know, and some of this, right. well, it was, it, it didn't get far out like, you know, harmonically, but it was um, some pretty interesting takes on some of these works, I yeah. thought. For me, the Seguidilla stood out with its various jazz rhythms, uh, most of them Latin, but none of them really sounding like a Seguidilla, which I thought was really right. interesting. The theme itself is disguised in these rhythms, but it does come out. You can make it out in there. And Ellis himself comes out with the oddest takes on these themes, always pushing into some unexpected area of shaping and articulating the themes in his solos. Yeah. And uh, the blues for the flower song is as satisfying as it was surprising. I really right. didn't expect that. Um, the whole album is an inventive take on these uh, familiar themes. Surprising is a good word for this album. I found it really surprising and appealing. It was enjoyable all the way through and expressed many jazz moods on the way. Yeah. It was a little, just a little short. Wait, how, how much could you kind of pull out of this? But, you know, I guess a satisfying 40 yeah. minutes is, is good. Yeah. Well, we're going to make up for that shortness in the next recording. <laughs> we certainly <Yeah>. are. <laughs> we're going to go down to South America to Chile for Subduction from saxophonist Sergio Olivares. This came out December 23rd. Olivares is a 31-year-old saxophonist born in the city of Copiapo, Chile. This is his first album as a leader. It's a compilation of original compositions, which he says is framed in jazz with influences of swing, bebop, Latin jazz, modal, and contemporary jazz. Pretty much frames up what we're going to hear here. So Olivares on alto sax and also flute and the compositions here are all his originals. We've got Sebastian Castro on piano, Nahuel Blanco on bass, Carlos Cortez on drums, and we've got special guest Sebastian Jordan on trumpet. We're going to start right out with the title track, Subduction, which I guess in English is subduction, the collision of tectonic plates, uh, something hmm. we're familiar here with in <laughs> Japan as well. <laughs> we're, we're just recently familiar, unfortunately. Right. And also has formed part of the landscape of Chile. Well, things get started with a hypnotic alternating chord groove over a Latin beat. After a 16-measure rhythm section introduction, Olivares is in on the melody. It stays over that groove with a modal feel in an AAB form, switching up to swing on the B section. Going around again, he gets a solo break into the swing to start blowing. So let's hear it get going. Thank you. 
Boy, they keep it swinging with walking bass under the solo. There's another Latin change-up to break it up, and he blows on and on with intense lines. Castro follows on piano with sprite energetic lines, rhythmic licks, and tense modal chords. Things get sparse and quiet for a bass solo from Blanco with snappy lines. They take it through the melody sections again, and Olivares continues on with some more blowing, taking it down to a soft ending. It's an intense start to a very intense album. Track 2, Yaste, which I understand is an ancestral spirit who assumed the form of a huge white woolly guanaco and watched over the wild herbs, their pastures, and the springs where both men and animals quenched their thirst. Ooh, thirst And indeed, this one has a spiritual jazz atmosphere. A solo rubato sax intro. The main melody is lyrical and uplifting over a repeating chord sequence for 40 measures. Castro joins in with the sax on the lines and the rhythmic figures change up in eight measure sections. It's more of a collective improvisation on this one. Wispy and short sax phrases with nice interplay with the piano and bass. Let's hear some of that from three minutes in. goes on and on, working up the intensity with Cortez's drums, and it comes back down softer for a final dance through the melody, from Saxon piano to a slowed and extended ending. Track 3, Noche Desertica, Desert Night, a ballad with a switch to flute from Olivares. It has a longing 16-measure minor melody, but there are some nice harmonic twists there as well, and Olivares continues on with a delicate flute solo, so let's hear a bit of his soloing on flute. follows from there with a ringing bass solo and Olivares is back with the flute melody to finish it up with some nice final piano ripples from Castro. 
track four, Ninos Migrantes, Migrant Children, along rubato intro of sax lines over piano and bass chords, building and releasing tension filled with drum, tom, and cymbals. At about a minute and a half in, things get into a steady plodding 6-8 tempo with a modal minor melody. The harmonic sequence seems to be a repeating 16-measure idea, getting some harmonic changes from the ninth measure. Olivares continues on soloing with a restrained intensity, and Castro follows on piano, starting out gentle but working up some intensity. So let's hear some of his piano soloing on this track. Olivares returns more intense now with searing modal lines getting outside the harmonies. Let's hear some of that spiritual angst build up and release at the end. And they wrap it up with a rubato ending that's like the intro idea. Track 5, Chihuel. Things change up here with an original boppy 12-bar blues, and Sebastián Jordán joins in as guest on trumpet, twice around and into a solo from Olivares. Let's hear it get going. is up on the blues there, swinging hard with an Art Pepper-like intensity. And Hordan solos next, and things change up from the blues for some rhythmic and harmonic diversion coming back in sections. 
And he plays on and on. It's a really long trumpet solo, eventually getting back to the blues. So let's check out some of his trumpet playing here. Castro gets a go on piano next with similar diversions from the blues path, and Blanco doesn't get left out either, getting the final solo on bass over just light cymbal work before everyone returns for a couple final runs of the blues melody. It's a long track at 11 minutes, but it's not the longest. <laughs> track six is Red, a burning minor bopper here. It's an ABAB form with cool horn melody lines. On the A section, things get broken up with drum fills and then get chugging along on the B section. There's a final four-measure tag that is actually the opening to the A section. And for the solos, they switch up the form to AAB, and Olivares and Jordan trade off runs through the pattern. Let's hear some of those fiery exchanges on this tune. Castro has a solo next, and Cortez and Blanco change up the groove to a Latin feel under him. The horns are back to end it with a version of the B and A melody sections. Track 7, Telorico, which I guess is the unusual word telluric, meaning mm. of the earth as a planet. This one is a more free excursion. Blanco gets it started with solo bass and ringing interval lines. Olivares is in on the very soft sax lines that are more atmospheric than melodic over the minor modal mood. After two minutes, it flows along rather amorphously rather than with a push. You just have to let this one unfold for you. 
Blanco gets into more snappy bass rhythms just before five minutes. By six minutes, it's driving ahead with Olivares getting intense improvised lines, and it comes down softer for some piano, and then bass focus around eight and a half minutes. Castro gets the focus from 10 minutes, and Olivares returns with riffs on top. It chills down slow and soft for the last couple of minutes with Blanco ringing out the bass over piano lines. At 12 and a half minutes, it's an extended exploration. Track 8, De Norte a Sur, from North to South. A funky and riffy R&B tune with a drum click on three. Olivares gets the riffs going on his own, and then the rhythm section is in, with Castro doubling up with him over the 24-measure section. Olivares continues on soloing, getting into some bluesy and soulful licks. Let's hear it get going. keeps things rhythmic in his solo, but also gets some harmonic tension into his lines. They return to the riffy melody for Castro to get launched on his own solo, and another return to the riffs brings in Blanco for a funky bass solo, which is pretty cool, and we haven't checked out his playing yet, so let's do a sample of his solo. After that, they wrap it up with the melody to a final held out note. And track nine is take two of the title track, Subduction. It's basically the same groove, nothing really different in approach as track one, but check it out to see how the solos develop differently from the inspiration at the moment and see how jazz is different every time a song is played. Well, at an hour and 16 minutes, it's a long debut recording as a leader. Olivares shows that he's absorbed the tradition from bebop, post-bop, modal, and more freestyles, 
things swing, get Latin grooves, and some funky straight beats too. His original compositions are varied, sometimes nostalgic of earlier periods, sometimes showing more of his own heritage. He's an intense saxophonist with a lot of technique and energy, exciting solos all around from Olivares, Castro, Blanco, and special guest Sebastián Jordán. We'll see what direction he goes from here. Yeah, intense is a good word for his his playing, and just having this album be like so long with all that intense play, it really requires a lot of mm. uh, energy to listen to it. There's a lot of standout playing on this record. I thought it was really, uh, you know, there were a lot of good ideas, and yeah. it was really interesting. Solos are extended. It was kind of like a 1960s length in some cases. You yeah. know, some of those more experimental uh, 1960s jazz records uh, where you get a lot of soloing. And that happened here. And they continually held your interest, too. I mean, there are a lot of good ideas in those solos. The track that stands out for me is the rather experimental Chihuel. Yeah. With its constant changes in approach to rhythm and solo material, it sounds like many tracks in one, kind of... Like a, I used the cubist painting, you know, analogy before, mm-hmm. and it fits here too, of what each individual solo can sound like. I also dug the groove in De Norte a Sur, and Subduction Toma Two, the final track, is especially smoking in the solo category. I thought um, I could go through each track and how it's different from the others, but uh, that's the summary there. There are lots of uh, approaches and styles on the album. I guess he wanted to show a lot of what he could do on his debut. Yeah. Uh, from bop to building solos from fragmentary themes. Of course, it's the playing that keeps it interesting, and uh, it is interesting. And it's really intense. It is kind of a... <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it, it kind of wipes you out. <laughs> it, it does, yeah. it. But in a yeah. good way. Yeah. All right, and the final recording for this episode is No Second Guessing. It's a self-release from saxophonist Andrew Janik came out on January 5th. Dr. Androgenic is the instructor of jazz saxophone at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, and he's an active saxophonist, composer, arranger, educator throughout the Midwest and Mountain West, and he shared the stage in performances with Randy Brecker, Jeff Hamilton, Phil Woods, and Jimmy Heath. Some big names there. On this recording, Jenix on tenor saxophone. We've got Brian Scarborough on trombone, Gavin Allen Dunn on organ, and Bobby Weens on drums. We've got mostly all original compositions by Janik, and also we've got one from Scarborough, and one interesting twist on a standard at the end. We'll get to that later. Program starts out with I'm Fine with Not Sleeping, a Janik original. A rhythm section intro with a clicky, even beat and some syncopation. Sax and trombone are in from the second beat of the 14th measure with pickups to the melody line that has interesting harmonization. The pickup idea comes again from the 16th measure, and the melody seems to be 38 measures into a break for Janik to get started on his solo. Let's hear this recording get going. Thank you. 
Janik starts out mellow on his solo, but he works up into snappy phrases, and you'll notice his appealing tone right away. The harmony here has some interesting changes to navigate, so let's hear how he wraps it up to get a sense of his soloing later in the tune. Dunn takes over from there with an organ solo, starting out with mostly just right hand over the bass pedals to a punchy chord climax. The horns are back for another run through the melody to wrap it up. Track two is called Professional Viber Intro. This is a short solo sax piece that explores some interesting harmonic directions and bends of pitch that works into Professional Viber, track three. The organ bass starts it out, joined by drums with a three-beat feel. Janet comes in softly, joined by Scarborough. It's kind of a mysterious melody with some tense harmonies in the horns. Maybe it's 32 measures. There's a little gap before the horns come in with busier tension building lines that work into a kind of restrained extended cacophony. They get out the angst with some low blats from the trombone and then things soften. Alan Dunn continues on with syncopated organ chords while Weens mixes it up a bit on the drums and the horns are back with a final more subdued melody line. This is an interesting track but probably not a good tune for date night. It's got an interesting title, professional viber yeah. too. It doesn't sound it doesn't sound like a really appealing person <laughs> given the uh, given right. the musical content of this track. Track four is the first of three interludes, a duet for sax and drums. Weens gets a mysterious light click and tom beat going, and Janik explores some harmonic directions, coming back to a rising riff idea. It kind of winds down like a clock spring, losing tension at the end. Track five. Another Janik original, No Second Guessing. This one has a sunny, harmonized horn melody. It starts out swinging, changes up to Latin in the 17th measure, and back to swing in the 29th measure. It's 40 measures in total, hanging on for one more measure to build the tension into a trombone solo from Scarborough. Let's check out his playing on this tune. Thank you. 
Yeah, nice tone and swinging slide work there. Janik follows with an easy sense of swing and facility jumping from high to low registers easily, and Alan Dunn has a rhythmic organ solo, and then the horns trade eights with some solo drums from Weens before getting back to the melody for a final time through. Track six is interlude number two, another Saxon drums piece. Weens keeps it sparse on the toms and cymbals, and Janik is fluid and lyrical while exploring some interesting interval jumps in his lines. Track seven is a Scarborough original, Shift. An easy swinging melody with weans on brushes. It's 32 measures, AABA construction. Let's check it out. Scarborough solos first here with a nice sense of swing, accents, and connection of ideas, and Alan Dunn follows on organ. Let's hear some of his organ solo on this tune. with the drums there. Jenik is up next over just organ as Weens drops out for a bit before rejoining to kick things up. The horns are back with the melody and a little extended ending section. Track eight, back to Jenik's original two boots. Weens gets it going with rubato cymbals and toms before setting a light six beat groove and getting joined by an ostinato organ bass. There's a soft, dreamy horn melody of around 30 measures that builds up intensity to some pronounced drum clicks and then comes back down. Jenik solos first with smooth and snaking lines, so let's hear some more of his sax playing on this tune. Thank you. 
Scarborough gets a trombone solo too, showing it can keep it soft and still have a great tone, and the horns finish it up with a melody section to a sudden ending. Track 9 is interlude number 3, the final drum and sax short piece. This one is snappy and syncopated with Ween's mixing up a groove underneath. Let's check this one out a little bit since I skipped the other interlude pieces. As it goes on, it gets a bit squawky, and then it comes down to the end. And track 10, I Love You. That's I Love You with a question mark. <laughs> uh, the Cole Porter tune, but here arranged uniquely by Andrew Jenick. Starts out with an organ bass ostinato, and it has a long intro that builds up with a horn riffing to a clean break after a minute. And then it gets reset into the melody at a minute and 10 seconds or so. Let's take a listen to the tune from that point on. recognized a snippet of the melody there where it briefly changes up to a 6-8 feel, but most of it's been creatively reimagined. As you heard, Alan Dunn solos on organ from there, and Jenick solos working up harmonic tensions, and Scarborough gets a go-to over an interesting mixed-up beat from Ween's. I like how he plays around a bit with the opening interval of the original melody in his solo. And we get to hear part of the reworked melody into some phrase repeats to finish up the tune. And that wraps up the recording. Janik avoids cliches in both his compositions and his solos. There are a lot of fresh sounds to discover here in the pretty much all original material. There's a range from lovely and lyrical melodies to angsty harmonies and more free improvisations. I like the sax and trombone lineup, and Scarborough's solos are consistently interesting. Alan Dunn is kind of a sparse organ player, but that gives an extra sense of space to the airiness of the recording and Weens keeps coming up with inventive drum ideas throughout. It's a bit of an adventurous listen in spots, but I found it rewarding and quite interesting. Yeah, fresh sounds. I think I want to build on that uh, a little bit. It's saxophone, trombone, and organ. And I had this kind of 
imaged this kind of in my head what this was going to sound like, and it really didn't sound like that at all. <laughs> right. It was kind of, again, another surprising album. We heard those instruments, but the approach in these tracks was inventive and unorthodox, and more on the playful side than the exciting, really. It was kind of more hmm. of a playful album. Rhythm is kind of toyed with a lot on the album. It seemed to be a theme, actually, of the playing. Yeah. I mentioned a uh, professional viber at the beginning. I actually, when I heard this, I was, I caught it in the right mood and I huh. found it to be a rather funny track <laughs> given hmm. the title. There's some funny articulations and unexpected harmonies in it. And everybody seems to be playing against each other. You would think like a, yeah. someone who's a viber is vibing and he's kind of, it's smooth. And this piece was not that. It was kind of interesting. Things seemed to straighten out more as the album went on, with tracks like Shift and Two Boots being more straightforward. And I also liked the three interludes, which focused on interesting light rhythmic grooves that the sax soloed yeah. over. Um, I thought this album was a bit of a breath of fresh air, really. Um, there's a lot happening, and it's a good one for the ears. It kind of yeah. cleared out my uh, expectations. I rather liked that. Yeah, it's all kind of fresh melodies and harmonic yeah. progressions and a nice lightness to it, so... Yeah, check it out. All right. Well, that wraps up episode 148. I think we've got all of our selections for next week. Any uh, preview for the audience, Mike? Well, we're entering 2024 finally with two of my three releases. Uh, mm. One of them is kind of interesting. There's uh, Jonathan Freeman Atwood's uh, Handle for Trumpet. Now, you might be out there, and I'll say this again next week, you might be saying, hmm, Handel didn't write music for the trumpet and the piano, and indeed he didn't. But uh, right. these are all arrangements. I think Jonathan Freeman Atwood being a, he's a teacher as well as a performer, and mm -hmm. uh, he wants to um, create more of this um, older music for the trumpet and piano just so people have things right. to play, and this is um, what that is. Another one is by um, Uzbeki, Uzbek, we would say, pianist Bezad Abduraimov, and... Um, yeah, I've already listened to that one. Yeah. His new album. Yeah, I remember his um, previous one. It was uh, had um, Debussy, Chopin, and Mussorgsky on it. And it came out in 2021 when we first started doing the podcast. And I had it like mm. lined up to do one of the earliest podcasts, but we never <laughs> wound up doing it. So right. I'm kind of glad we're going to finally get to talk about him. And then in keeping with that uh, Shadows of My Ancestors mode, we're going to go on to uh, an album called The Silk Road, Chamber Music for Winds. That um, and it has a piece on it called the Silk Road, which kind of follows cool. the various countries in it. It's, it's thing that was really intriguing, and I thought I'd kind of match that up. So we're going a little exotic in classical music next week. All right, hmm. I've got all new jazz this week for next week's episode. We're going to have a Danish saxophonist's debut recording. We're going to have a new release on Cellar Live piano quartet recording, and we're going to hear the new live recording from Justin Coughlin pianist we really like yeah i'm looking forward to that i might go to that one right away so lots of things to look forward to there if you want to find that playlist and get a start listen before the episode that'll be up on deezer a few hours after this episode is published you can also find a link to it on our facebook page thanks as always to fast signs of staten island for our glowing neon logo and be sure to check out the same difference two jazz fans one jazz standard podcast their little promo will follow the audio on this episode any last comments, Mike? Just Michael Jarrell. Listen to that album. I want to push that. <laughs> the, the classical album. I thought it was really different and intriguing. Yeah. So that's my last thought of the day. I'm going to go listen to that again one day when, you know, we'll see. And yeah. maybe again and again. I was intrigued by that one as well. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps up episode 148. We'll be back again with 149 next week. And until then, keep listening. Keep listening.
Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.